Welcome to the Optimize Your Capacity podcast. Our goal is to help individuals as well as health and fitness professionals enhance their capacity and reach their untapped potential. We aim to have the listener leave with practical advice they can apply today. Expand your capacity. All right, guys. So today on the podcast, we had uh, Bradford Scott. Pretty excited about the conversation we're going to have. We're going to kind of break out all the details and ins and outs of really program design from the rehab level all the way to the strength and conditioning level. I think this is something we all struggle with on some front. One, we get stuck in our routines, but two, it's sometimes really hard to step away, see where our clients are at, and make sure our program is modified to meet our clients' current needs the day of. Brad's background is he's a head and strength and conditioning coach for the Atlanta Braves. He's been in that role since 2006. Prior to this time with the Atlanta Braves, he was the director of athletic performance at the University of Portland. This is where I got to know Brad, and we've been kind of friends since. Prior to coming to the University of Portland, Coach Scott spent a year at the University of Southern California as the director of strength and conditioning. Uh, going to the Sweet 16 in 2007 and the Final Four in 2008 for the women's volleyball program. He was also at California State Northridge, where he served as the director in strength and conditioning with all 16 programs with men's soccer and volleyball, both ranked in the top 15 in the nation. Brad's a lifelong learner, and he learned from this discussion how he's just basically taken every course you can imagine, and he's just got an awesome, eclectic background. And he's always just trying to stay on the cutting edge of sports performance with certification through the NSCA, National Academy of Sports Medicine, active release techniques, functional movement systems, DNS, USA weightlifting, and basically every year going to tons of different workshops. So again, I hope you really enjoy our discussion today with Brad. I think you guys will learn a bunch. And hopefully, again, my goal is you leave with some good tips, advice that you can help work on building programs and, again, periodize programs to meet your clients' needs. All right, Brad, thank you so much for taking the time today. I'm really excited to get this conversation going, learn from you. Give us just a little bit of a background on how you got where you're at. Uh, well, first of all, thank you very much for having me. Uh, it's an honor to be on these. Um, I've listened to podcasts a tremendous amount of time on the road, so thank you for having me. Um, I got my start actually actually in high school. Um, I was the youngest of five kids. Um, I had a really good strength coach in high school, and honestly, I was just trying to keep up with my older brothers. Um, I went to college for exercise science at UMass Boston, and during that time period, uh, I was doing my internship, and I was working at a gym and got my internship at Northeastern. And during that time period, um, the gentleman who was the head strength coach, he actually had an assistant that had left to take a previous job. So it was just him covering like 25 sports. Oh, and next thing I know, I'm pretty much working, you know, I'm going to class in the morning and I'm there at the weight room at noon and I'm leaving at eight o'clock. And I was just, he threw me right to the fire. Um, and that's really where my passion kind of grew from it. And when he actually hired assistant to fill that role, uh, the person that he had hired was a former grad assistant at University of Arizona. And I'll never forget the day he walks in and he says, hey, uh, I just hired this guy from Arizona. Um, they're looking for a GA spot. Do you want it? And I was thinking to myself, what's a GA spot? I have no <laughs> idea. I am going to like I have a season pass. I'm going to go snowboard like that was kind of what was in my head. Um, and so like a long story short, I went and uh, two days later, was uh, accepted the position as a grad assistant. And a month later, I graduated and was driving across the country 
um, and got my really first taste of college strength conditioning, even more in the trenches as a GA and at a much higher level. Um, I was there for two and a half years, uh, worked with a great team of colleagues who taught me a ton and then went to, uh, what year velocity Arizona, uh, 2002 to 2004. And you worked at all teams or which teams? So we pretty much, the way it was split up is I had tennis and cheerleading and golf. Okay. Um, but as a grad assistant, you essentially, everybody worked with football. Um, and then you were kind of working with every team in some way, shape or form as kind of another floor coach, you know, so it was time with baseball. It was time with basketball. Um, I had a really good mentor there, Brad Arnett, uh, and Preston green. So it was just kind of being a sponge and learning from as many people on staff as I could. Yeah. Um, and it really set me up. I, I, uh, and met a girl, uh, still with her and (laughs) she lives in California at the time and I was living in Arizona and um, I ended up taking a job with the Velocity. Uh, Velocity Sports Performance was kind of growing. I knew that I wanted to learn more about speed training um, and movement in general and um, took a job there. I worked there for about nine months. Uh, Actually got a a really good kind of education on the private sector I would say of how to sell and how to negotiate and how to make uh, cold calls and things that were really outside of my comfort zone that, I, you know, I never really had to do in the college environment. Uh, but I missed college. There was just something about that. I really missed yeah. uh, the team environment, the, the age of the athletes. Uh, and I was fortunate enough to get a director position at Cal state Northridge, um, which was awesome. I was 25 at the time and I had 15 teams. Um, and I would basically train a team, 10 teams in, within a day. And it was almost like every hour on the hour I had a new team. Um, and it was, you know, starting there at 6 a.m. and you'd finish it right around 6 p.m. with a little bit of a break in between. But it was awesome. Um, I wouldn't change that experience. Uh, I was literally like painting the walls of the weight room and building platforms and just pouring my heart and soul into it. And uh, I absolutely loved my time there with those athletes. Uh, from there, I went to USC and got a chance to go back and work with just basketball and men's and women's volleyball. It was an interesting kind of process of I was still young and looking for a mentor, uh, but I was still out on an island. So I've always been kind of forced to be my own mentor is kind of how I look at it. Um, I was there for a short period of time, a year and a half. Same girl got a job with Nike and that took me up to Portland. And I was at the University of Portland for uh, nine basketball seasons and was able to kind of build that program over time. And then uh, during that time, got a massage, went back to school for massage. Um, and that kind of took me to the Atlanta Braves, kind of this rehab slash manual therapist position. And I was in that for a year, uh, which was awesome because I basically lived in a training room for a year. So I really got to kind of help bridge that gap and just the, the nuances of the cultures of the training room, um, and spending my time in there and how to get to know the athletes on a different level. Um, and then I've been the head strength coach now for the last three seasons. So you've kind of got an eclectic background. How would you describe your methodology or like, do you have like pillars that you kind of preach or how would you? Um, I would say I'm not really governed by one particular methodology, yeah. meaning um, I'm not an Olympic weightlifting guy, but I love the Olympic weightlifts. 
I'm not a West Side powerlifting guy, but I understand where they're coming from. And um, I'm more of what tool do I need that fits that athlete for what adaptation am I seeking? And how does that adaptation allow them to express their skill at a higher level? Um, so do they move well? Um, do they understand movement competency? And do I have a good movement vocabulary? Do they understand and have kind of a, a giant foundation of GPP, um, of which you're kind of broadening their skill set um, as a human being? So kind of being human specific before sports specific yeah. is kind of how I look at things. Um, and then trying to fill in some different gaps of what is their limiting factor in their ability to express their skill and their sport. Um, and then what is maybe their limiting factor that is going to predispose them to injury that I can somehow, you know, get ahead of that if yeah. possible. I don't think we can pre prevent injuries, but we can put them in better positions to be successful uh, you, and more durable. Are you using your like LMT skill set now in your current role or not as much? Not as much, um, yeah. but it's not frowned upon if I put a yeah. guy on the table and we say, hey, let's go through some stuff. Yeah. Uh, you know, whether it's, hey, my hip's kind of bugging me. Well, let's kind of get you loosened up. Or I incorporate some of that as I get a guy ready for a pregame stretch. Um, yeah. And you're kind of doing some of that tissue work on a lower level um, just to get, you know, hips loosened up and kind of whatever we need to do. Um, it also just always gives you a lens of which – um, you're operating off of. It's a different way of looking at movement, of tone, yeah. um, and kind of seeing how that person's just wired, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so then when, like, let's say you have the team in for a training session, how long are they usually in for, and what are your components of it? Do you have, like, a, a prep phase, a power phase, a strength phase, or, like, what are your, like frameworks for a training session i think uh in this particular role with the graves um you know you've got such a, a wide variety where you have a 21 year old athlete who comes in and um you're just trying to get him to teach him routines still um teach him basic foundational lifts so the way i if i look at program design is I always think of we play in series, so three-game series. So the yeah. first game, first day of a series, I want to just teach you how to move and get you ready. So it's kind of a little bit more of come in. Uh, you might do a hurdle warm-up or jump on a true stretch uh, and then go through some med ball work or some you know linear speed or multidirectional speed and plyos. Um, let's just get your body awake and ready to play. The next day, um, we're going to do more of a total body lift. And so it'll be coming in and your warm-up will be geared around what foundational lifts you're going to be doing. So you might come in, do a general warm-up, and then we know we're going to be deadlifting. So what type of hinge patterns are we making sure that are structurally sound? Um, our core work may be more based upon building rigidity and more of like plank series and, and those types of things. Um, and then we'll get into our strength work. And then we're done. And then usually the third day of the series is a day game. So it's kind of like, what do they need from us in order to get ready? Um, and what I found is because of our travel schedule, that first day of movement, you may get in at four o'clock in the morning. Um, you're sleeping in a hotel bed that's not yours. Uh, the environment has changed so much. So how do I just get you moving and comfortable within the environment that you're going to play in? 
And then usually by the second day, your body's somewhat stabilized into the time zone. Um, you know, you've, you've seen how you respond to the mattress and kind of that environment. And then we can kind of make adjustments based off of that. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and then kind of the age group is, you know, you got a 21 year old kid, his programs, maybe 15, 20 minutes. And then you might have a veteran who's a little bit older, who's got a better training age. You've got a better relationship with him. He understands how his body re- responds to the training. So he might spend 20 to 30, 30, 40 minutes in there. Okay. So one thing I want to pick your brain on is like concepts of program design and periodization. Before we like start to get into that, how would you describe like what is periodization? I think periodization is basically a theory that is looking at how does a body kind of build upon certain adaptations to acquire a skill long-term. Um, so if we look at like a linear periodization, it's just continuing to appreciate intensity, volume, duration, frequency, and how do we start to build off of that in a sequential manner um, that slowly applies stress in a way in which the body will adapt theoretically in a way that we hope. Um, I think everyone's different moving yeah. forward, but that's kind of how I look at periodization. And then, you know, are you looking at it from a, a week long to two weeks to a month to a year to, you know, if you're preparing an Olympic athlete, how do you write a quadrennial cycle and, and appreciate those things? So at the level you're at right now, do you get to do longer blocks or is it more modulating and kind of take it day by day or how does it work currently? I th- I think it's a little bit of, um, I would say, how do I have a fluid periodization model and how do I use technology to help build in uh, where is that athlete on that particular day and what is our goal? So how do we use somewhat of auto-regulation? Uh, and what I mean by that is, hey, we're going to use some velocity-based training. We're going to give you a set range. of We might look to hit three to five sets or six sets even. Um, but your rep ranges are going to be three to six when your, um, speed drops off, then we're going to cut the set. So it might be three reps, one set, it might be four or five reps, the next set. Um, and then in terms of load selection, that's guiding our load based upon where you are on that particular day. Um, and so having kind of this fluid model, um, where you're still using somewhat of the traditional program design concepts, you're now kind of seeing where's this organism, where's this athlete um, today, and how do I make sure that I can give them a little bit more of a precise prescription stress that they can handle. Yeah. So let's kind of like run through it practically. So let's say, whatever, you're just working with one athlete, you just ran them through some sort of intake test that you do, whatever, FMS, if you do other things, some performance measures, you've got your data where do you start on building a program? Um, What's your next step? Yeah, I think the one is identifying what are your KPIs. So um, if we look at it from like a movement competency, is it uh, an FMS, uh, general orthopedic exam, kind of what is their their foundation of which they're moving upon? Um, I generally will look at resting heart rate because that will give me an idea of where they are um, aerobically um, Mm -hmm. and just the state of their health. Um, We'll look at a vertical jump. Um, we have some force plates, so we're learning to learn, uh, learning how to use those to really start to guide our programming. Say, so, you know, how does this athlete jump? Is there an asymmetry that we can look at between right and left leg 
Um, and then we will put them through some type of different testing battery, whether it's um, not necessarily in this setting, but like other settings, we would use a, a mile test or a yo-yo test, or sometimes we've done a watt bike test on some mm -hmm. of our guys to look at like a six second anaerobic sprint test. And then we're starting to look at like creating a picture of health before performance. So I say I have to give an athlete somewhat, give his health back as best I can, and then build the performance on top of that moving forward. So a guy comes in, we try to look at an intake form. Uh, part of that intake is looking at the environment. How well do they take care of themselves, their age, their biological age, their uh, training age, their movement competency from the tests that we have, their individual goals of where we're moving forward. Um, you know, you might have a younger athlete that you need to put weight on. Uh, you might have an older athlete that you're just trying to keep healthy. Um, and so then we start to groove those particular patterns and build a program around the foundation of movement. Then we're trying to monitor that movement throughout the program design in each phase before you kind of move on to the next one and making sure that the adaptations you're seeking are actually happening. Yeah. How long or how often do you typically reassess? Are you doing that four to six weeks or what's the ideal scheme there? Um, you, you know, it's funny. So I think what in when I was in the college environment, I would test at the beginning of the semester yeah. and then you test at the end of the semester. And I was always baffled because I always had like buckets. I had the kids that killed it. I had the kids that there was no change and I had the kids that got worse. And you're like, we just went through three months of an off season semester. And like, how did that happen? And so, and you're as a coach, there's so much self doubt. You're like, wait a second here. Like, I don't understand this. Like I thought I wrote the best program. I wrote what the book told me to write. And I was trying to combine, you know, all these different complex methodologies that you read about and they're supposed to work because they're written in these books. Yeah. And so now what I try to do is test every day in some way, shape, or form. Um, so an athlete comes in, they do a vertical jump every day. Um, if that's a power indicator, then we should be able to see our trends. Are we trending forward in the right direction? Um, if we're looking at like resting heart rate, just we used to have our athletes in college test every day. And now we knew that if their resting heart rate was going down, well, that they were in a better spot. We were getting uh, the aerobic adaptations that we were looking for. Yeah. Um, so now it's just kind of, and then your conversations, does an athlete look beat up? You know, is he pretty good? And then within the auto regulation standpoint, I think you can stay on a particular phase as long as somebody is continuing to improve and develop. I don't think it's set in stone that it has to be a two week phase or a three week phase or a four yeah. week phase. Yeah. I think okay. that's with the, the new technology that we have. I think it's allowing us to now start to um, ride a phase a little bit longer um, if you have the time to do so. Yeah. So if you're at a smaller level with a lower budget, you can still take heart rate. You could still do like a subjective questionnaire of some sort, an RPE or whatever. And then even just like a handshake and just like, yeah, what their body looks like as a readiness or whatnot, I think is really valuable. Not all of us have force plates. <laughs> yeah, I think, you yeah. know, at the University of Portland, I had a $2,000 operating budget. 
Yeah. I had a jump mat. That's all I could use. Yeah. But we used Google Docs and we made a, a wellness questionnaire on Google Docs that we sent to every kid's phone. They filled out the questionnaire and then we just put it into an Excel spreadsheet. And we had a really good indication of how well that athlete was responding to stress. And it really just gave us an opportunity to build better relationships with the student athletes um, and initiate conversations that may have gone um, unprovoked had we not had some information, you know, Hey, you had a yeah. bad night's sleep, everything. Okay. Yeah. You know, Hey, I'm really stressed out about this test or whatnot. And then yeah. once the athletes started to see that we were using the testing and using the uh, surveys to actually help guide our programming, um, then they were more bought in. And I actually said too, one of the things is if we were asking for something, are we providing them the information that they gave us? So at the end of every week, we would give them a printout of, Here's your wellness questionnaire data. Here's your RPE data. Here's your vertical jump data. Here's your sleep data. Here's how some of the things were correlating um, with where they were. And that really started to help create that buy-in um, from their standpoint as well. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. So you talked about movement efficiency before or quality. What are some basic patterns you want to be seeing your athletes achieve before you really start loading them? I mean, are you using uh, the FMS for that, or do you have, like, other movement tests that you're doing? Um, I think it's – I always look at, like, parts versus patterns. Yeah. Um, so if I had to break things down, um, part-wise, it would be more like your ortho, you yeah. know, basic ranges of motion, um, active and passive control of the joints, and then going into more of your dynamic. And that might be patterns if we use an FMS. Um, if that's what you have, then it's a great mm -hmm. tool. It's a quick screen and it gives you a lot of information. Um, and we use a wide balance test as well. Yeah. Um, specifically in this population, like how well can they actually control their pelvis and move in all three planes? Um, and then when we look at like just general movement, once we've got our FMS and kind of um, whatever screen that we're using, then we're starting to look at like, can they push, pull, uh, squat, hinge, carry, brace? Can they rotate? Um, and then so for, kind of look, for push pull stuff, are you like objectifying that? Not necessarily. Like body weight ratios or something? Okay. No, I think it's just more like, you know, like I used to get into some of that stuff and now mm -hmm. it's like, do they have this, the upper body strength to do a, a pull up a pull or chin up? Yeah. yeah. You know, do they actually understand how to do a inverted row correctly on like TRX row? Yeah. Um, do they understand how to brace and, and, and load a push up correctly? Um, yeah. Can they lunge correctly? You know, where are they forward, backward? How do they start to move in the different planes of the body yeah. weight? Um, and then kind of like a walk, skip, run, jump, bound, hop yep. type of thing. You know, kind of start real small um, and then move off of that. Yeah. So if you have someone who's moderately dysfunctional, we'll say they're not a train wreck, but they have some issues. How do you, I mean, this is a struggle I know I have, but how do you go about in including correctives, movement training, but also satisfying their needs, be, you know, getting them stronger and feeling like they're doing stuff. So how do you incorporate correctives, I guess would be my question. Yeah, I think every exercise is a corrective if done correctly, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's a matter of, of building in certain progressions and regressions um, yeah. within your training model. So if we look at a squat, you know, maybe they have an assisted squat, then a, you know, like a med ball bear hug squat and then um, a goblet squat. And then you're going into two goblet squats, then to a front squat, then to a back squat. Like yeah. 
Yeah. Is there a, a continuum of which you're still performing that movement pattern that still allows them to uh, get what they need? And then from there, uh, once you have the, the correctives, you're just kind of sometimes I'll partner the corrective exercise and pair the corrective with the overall objective uh, exercise that I'm trying to groove a better pattern with. Yeah. Um, so that's also another way of improving movement quality. Um, and then another thing too, is just like, if it's important and it's an important pattern, I think that it sh- could be trained every day. You know, I don't yeah. think you're going to over, if they're that dysfunctional, so to speak, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but like, if it's that important within the program, then do it every single day. And, and yeah. kind of that micro dose of, um, having that continuity and that frequency is going to allow their improvement, you know, it's yeah. going to come much faster. Um, yeah, that's, that's awesome. Well said. So if we go on a, like a, another end of the spectrum here, like what you say, I'm like an individual recreational athlete. How do you recommend periodizing for that person or programming for that person? Because I, I feel like, again, the individual recreational person just gets stuck in a rut of doing whatever, eight weeks of the same exercises, never really changing their program and they never actually get stronger because they're just doing the same stuff over and over again. Do you recommend some sort of, yeah, how do you get out of that? Do you just tell them to change the program every six to eight weeks? Do you just, how would you handle that case? I think um, for the recreational athlete, it comes down to education. I think that there's a reason that they're, they're coming to you because they're in some type of problem that they're in seek of, advice in order to kind of get over a hump. So the biggest thing is, is looking at what is their overall stress? Um, meaning what kind of job does that recreational athlete have? Are they they really high stress individual? Um, where, what is their lifestyle as well? You know, how well can they take care of themselves, diet, nutrition, those types of things. And then looking at like, what is their, um, athletic history as well? Kind of give you a little bit of a groove. And then what is actually going to be sustainable for them? Um, so it might be two days a week and it's yeah. starting small wins of, Hey, we're going to get two days a week, but then also tracking what they do as well. I think sometimes people have this, uh, idea of, um, you know, muscle confusion or every kind of this CrossFit where I just kind of show up and I do whatever I want to do. And I don't mean that that's bad. I mean, mixed model has its yeah. place. Um, but I think there has to be some continuity and kind of being brilliant at the basics, but then also challenging yourself. And like a quick modification is a, a different program is just changing the rest period of the same exercise or changing the tempo of, a, if you're just doing a basic squat and you're going down and up on a one zero one tempo, try a five zero one tempo, try adding in an isometric pause at the bottom. Um, those little minor changes lead to kind of macro results down the line. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I heard this analogy. It was really good. And a guy was describing a training protocol. He's essentially saying like, think of like an iPhone and the iPhone, the first generation iPhone, the iPhone doesn't change dramatically between the iPhone one and the iPhone eight. There's very small minor changes that add up to a better quality product in the long run. So when you're looking at changing your program, find what is sustainable for you and then make minor changes, whether it's sets, increasing intensity, increasing volume, um, changing the tempo and the speed, 
or changing the position and the biomechanical demand, whether the implement, you know, if you're squatting, like we talked about, you could use a med ball and you could go overhead. You could use a barbell. You could use a one kettlebell, double kettlebells, chains, bands. There's numerous ways to elicit a response and still get good at that same particular yeah. exercise, which will pay dividends. And it's not so much of a radical shock to the body. I think sometimes training it's like learning a foreign language and you're learning the language of how to train. And if, yeah. say you go to a country for two weeks and you're starting to get comfortable with that language. And then all of a sudden you go to a different country just because the book told you to go to a different country. <laughs> now you, you like, you kind of lost everything that you've learned. So yeah. you, there's gotta be some continuity in what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Um, so then if we think of things as being in blocks, which I know doesn't always work that way, but I'd be curious to hear your two cents on kind of what the evidence says and what you see practically from your experience. But how often are you training the different pillars? So let's say it's off season, you've got the team, whatever sport you're working with. Are you doing power training every day? Are you doing some sort of endurance cardio training every day? How do you incorporate maybe proprioception balance work? What are your frequencies on these different pillars? Um, I'd say right now, if I look at a block, I tend to still think of four weeks in general. Um, yeah. I, at the beginning of a off season period, I'm trying to reestablish kind of a GPP, a general physical preparation. So one of the things that we know is that the aerobic system is the foundation of health. So I want to kind of have a polarization of kind of a, a high frequency day and then a low frequency day or low stimulus day. And what I mean by that is uh, generally I, I start on a Monday as kind of a lower frequency day. Um, I used to think of coming in, oh, everyone's going to be fresh from the weekend, but let's face it, most people come in crushed from the weekend. So <laughs> how do I start the process? So for example, on a Monday, we might come in, and we're going to do some uh, tempo running, some movement quality, a little bit of core and some uh, whether you want to call it FRC or kind of some uh, Z health, just yeah. general conditioning, body weight work that we need to do. And then go and do some tempos and kind of set the stage for the week. The next day you come in and it would be um, more of you're going to add in, say, a total body circuit. Um it may be on the clock where we're doing something on the minute. Um, you've got 10 different exercises and this is just kind of an idea, but mm -hmm. you're cycling through these different exercises and you're making sure that you're hitting all the patterns. So it might be a, there might be a squat in there, like a goblet squat off of the tempo. Then you're going to go to a push up, Then you're going to go to a vertical pull or a single leg movement and kind of building out what are the major movement patterns I need to uh, elicit a response from and train from a global perspective, then how are we operating off of a heart rate to make sure that our um, intensity isn't too high, but we're still building a foundation of work capacity. Yeah. And then you're, you're kind of going back and forth between unloaded and loaded uh, throughout the week. So you may have an ideal world. You might have say three tempo sessions of running and three lift full body lifts or a, a variation of the two. Yeah. Um, when you're doing your tempos, it's, my definition of a tempo is classic kind of Charlie Francis where you're, you know, should be 75% intensity. It should feel like you, I would say finish like you start. Um, mm. And so it might be 20, you know, 15 to 20, 25 seconds worth of a, a nice stride. 
and then you kind of rest, relax, kind of shake it out a little bit. If you wanted to do some other body weight work, you could, and then sprint on back out on a, on a field. And you might build up anywhere from, uh, you know, 10 to 20 to, to 30 reps on that, depending upon the athlete and the, what you're looking to go for. So in like, I know the professional sports world, but basically all sports world is like the most important thing is to keep your athlete available and injury free. So then when it comes to like the power work or the higher impact stuff, are you monitoring that? Are you whatever counting impacts on the ground or how do you keep track of all of that, especially if you're in season and they're playing the sport as well? Yeah. So I think what when we're um, within impacts, you're always looking at the volume and you're looking at the type of impact. Um, you know, if we're looking at how we progress our plyometrics uh, and our sprint volume over time with our plyos, you know, can we jump up onto a box? Well, then we know that we are reducing gravity. So there's yeah. not much uh, force that's being taken up. Um, so if we go kind of a double leg progression to a single leg progression, um, making sure that we're hitting, you know, can they go uh, vertically and then also can we go horizontally? Can we go laterally? Can we go diagonally? And then can we rotate? So I tend to think of like, am I hitting all three planes? And it's again, kind of that frequency and that theme of the day. So we may come in, we might do a little bit of a warm up that's more linear based, linear dynamic warm up. Then we'll go into some uh, power work, which would be your med ball work. So if it might be max effort throws that day where we are doing uh eight to 10 pound ball, a Dynamax ball, and we're trying to elicit triple extension. And so like a granny toss mm -hmm. or some type of movement that way, paired up with some box jumps. And then we get into more of our running prep where you're doing, um, building a small amount of stiffness in the lower body. So you're doing your pogos and your ankle pops, and then building into your skips and your gallops to be yeah. able to prepare them for where they're going to be going. And then into some five or 10 yard sprints, that will time. And then we would go into our rest of our lifting. So I think there's always a power component of what you're doing. It's just the, whether the intensity of the power work um, and how you're loading it, there's always a theme, but it may not be the, uh, there's always a thread of all of the different components mm -hmm. that you're working on, but it may not be the major theme that you're working on for that particular block, if that makes sense. So you when kind of have to have some forefront of where you're going um, and prepping the person for that. When you were in the basketball world, would you do much true plyo work during the season? Or would you consider the sport of basketball enough impact and do whatever med ball work instead? Or Yeah, I would, I would look at it. I kind of started to break it down because we had, um, especially we broke it down by minutes. And so if you were a guy that was playing a ton of minutes, um, you wouldn't do any more high intensity work. Uh, mm -hmm. If you were kind of in that middle ground, we still probably wouldn't do too much. Uh, and then if you were someone that didn't play that much, we would do a little bit more. Um, but it was more, I wouldn't say it was a true plyometric. It was still, a, you know, a single leg hurdle hop and stabilize. Um, so you still had to have a little bit of that because uh, that's still building proprioception. Yeah. That's still building strength and, and stiffness appropriately um and it's an easy way to quantify it where if you did three sets of five each leg it's really not going to beat you up yeah you yeah. know um so that's okay. something that we used to do yeah just a total 
curiosity question. I know you have like a DNS background and you've taken a lot of the coursework. How do you incorporate that into your programs? Are you having people uh, like on their back, all fours up in the air and doing things all together at once? Or are you doing them like one off with whatever athlete number one or whatever? No, you know, what's interesting is I think DNS for me, it gave me a framework of how do I connect the ribs and the pelvis and, yeah. and the kind of the thorax and the pelvis. So I think when you look at whether it's pulling from a PRI background, it's just basically appreciating kind of the diaphragm and the intra-abdominal pressure. And how do I essentially create uh, central to peripheral um, movement? And if I have a good solid bracing strategy and I teach an athlete how to breathe 360 and kind of build some rigidity, then that's going to centrate their joints to move at a better position. So if we look at, like, say, teaching somebody how to squat, as you mentioned, I can have somebody supine and I can have them, you know, with their arms out in kind of this happy baby position, you know, and I'm teaching them how to pull air down low and kind of fill the bowl of their pelvis with air and learning how to brace. And that basically is a squat pattern that you're training at the bottom of a squat and they know what they're supposed to feel and they can get a little bit of tactile sense from the ground of, hey, you need to kind of breathe into posteriorly and, and breathe some air in there. We need to connect, keep the ribs down and locked and centrated. And then this is kind of where your feet will naturally start to go. And then we can tip the person up back on their feet and we can teach them now, okay, now that we've got the breathing position and we know how to stabilize the spine, now let's stabilize and root to the floor. And then I want you to pull yourself down into that squat and now down in that particular squat, I may push on them and teach them what it means to kind of stay tight. So from a movement quality standpoint, you know, breathing and bracing strategy, DNS has helped quite a bit. Yeah. Um, when we look at even just putting somebody into a bear crawl, uh, bear position, when you're looking at a Turkish getup, mm-hmm. uh, when you're looking at kind of high threshold movement strategy versus low threshold movement strategy, there's things that I'm kind of being aware of and the intake process as I watch somebody go through an exercise. Yeah. Cool. That's awesome. Um, what about like your feedback on just the industry in general in regards, just cause our theme is program design. What do you think is like a common error that most of us are doing or that you've observed in regards to even if it's a, a whole block or single day program or maybe periodization, but what's like a, common issue that you see always show up if you're observing other people or seeing other programs? Um, I would say everyone wants to be high intensity and they, they want to kind of, um, try to literally like, it's not a good workout unless you're just destroyed. Um, (laughs) and you still have to train really, really hard, but you have to earn the right to do so. And it has to be within kind of a calculated way of doing it that makes sense yeah um so what i appreciate about crossfit especially crossfit has grown quite a bit and there's a there's more and more gyms and there's more and more people in the fitness industry and i think there's more and more people doing really good things however i also feel like in a college environment you've got a head coach that's saying hey we need to get mentally tough and you have these kids that are suffering and they're getting robbed though and you know, it was kind of, I, that just doesn't make any sense to me. No, no. Um, mental training is, do the kids show up on time? You know, are they ready to go and prepared? Have you explained to them as a coach what you're doing and why behind your programming? 
and then kind of the trusting in the process of what you're trying to do. Um, what I see is too many people are trying to, you know, well, the Tabata study said it worked, so we're going to, you know, put this yeah. person on it. Well, do they have the capacity to do that, you know, um, and do it for a very long time? Think of the training model. If I start slow, then I have a, it's kind of like looking at it as a marathon. If I come out and I run 400s over and over again, I'm not going to be very, I'm not going to yeah. finish that marathon, you know, at, yeah. at my 400 meter pace. Yeah. Um, so how do I start real slow and, and kind of build, a, look at it as a more of a practice as opposed to a, a microwave approach? I'd rather take the, the more pot roast, slow roast cooker approach to training. And I think yeah. that's the biggest mistake that I start to see now. So then is there like a, a reference you've used in the past or a book or what do you recommend for people if they want to learn more about program design? Um, I think there's a couple books. Um, Game Changer was by Dr. Fergus Conley. It was a great book. Um, I think he, what he does is he covers a, a wide spectrum of health and performance and the game and breaking down games into a similar uh, fashion of like, what are the constraints of the game from offense, attack, defensive attack, kind of the strategies in between, then understanding the physiological underpinnings, being able to elicit, like, what am I looking for in that to be successful at the game? And then kind of how do you monitor the interconnected relationships and appreciating all those into performance and what that means. Um, So I'd say he did a really good job. Um, Applied Sprint Training by James Smith is a phenomenal book looking at movement um, and breaking down sprinting. Okay. And then I'd say the last one that I thought was really good was um, High Performance Training for Sport by David Joyce. Um, What that particular book did for me was it it gave me – it's one, it's only like 20 bucks, which is a bonus. (laughs) <laughs> and then it, it gives you a really good idea from how do I create Z scores to kind of more some of the sports science to then how do I write a program based upon, you know, velocity based training or agility, or he just did a really good job of creating a book from a bunch of different experts that could be used as a reference and give you a some tremendous amount of tools as a strength conditioning coach moving yeah. forward. All right. Um, yeah, I'll put all those books on the show notes as well. Um, well, awesome. Final question that I'm asking everybody is, again, the theme is kind of building, optimizing your capacity for this podcast. What are you doing to kind of improve your own capacity or what are you working on to get better at? Um, I think it's kind of a, my daily routine, I think is try to, the first thing I try to do is read every day. Um, so I started this a long time ago. I try to buy a book with every paycheck. And that was something that no matter if you're uh, coming out of college and you're broke and you got nothing, you could still spend 10 bucks and buy a book yeah. uh, and you'll build a pretty good library over time. Um, so that was kind of, I try to read every day. Um, I try to listen to a podcast if I can uh, as well as I'm kind of getting ready for work. Mm-hmm. Um, and then honestly, I try to train as best I can um, as frequently as I can in order to try to be a better coach. Um, so whether that's writing a program that says, Hey, I really want to get good at this particular implement, uh, like a steel club. Well, I'm going to figure out every way that I can coach and use a steel club, uh, and just kind of make that a foundation of my programming. Um, 
So right now, personally, I'm getting back into more barbell work. I tore my ACL a couple of years ago, and I focused on nothing but kettlebells for two and a half years. Um, and now it's kind of getting back to more of the barbell lifts uh, and body weight. And so yeah. a typical day will be um, I'm trying to get better with uh, gym aware and kind of the auto regulation things that we spoke about. Mm-hmm. So kind of how do I jump on a force plate, making sure I'm doing some barbell work. And then the next day, continuing some more kettlebell work. And the third day of my program will be body weight and more gymnastics. And I tend to cycle those uh, huh. in threes over the course of a week. Yeah. So that's kind of what I'm trying to do to get better. And then uh, yeah. speak to professionals like yourself and kind of always network, uh, meet with yeah. different coaches in each city. That's a thing that I have at my disposal, which has been great and awesome. So always trying to pick other people's brains. Yeah. In the off season, do you go around to the athletes and kind of see where they train and learn from some of the other coaches that they trained with or no? Yeah. Yeah. I try to, yeah. but that's one of the big things is one is um, I'm trying to network so that I can continue to grow as a professional mm-hmm. Two, I'm trying to network for the benefit of our athletes. Um, is we got guys that live all across the country and you have yeah. to have a strong network to make sure, Hey, I got to get it down in Texas. This is where you should go train. You know, yeah. do you have a better understanding of what you're going to get back? Um, and then you, it's just all just sharing of knowledge because I think that's yeah. everyone's going to grow from that. Um, so that's kind of how I try to maximize my time and try to meet with at least one person each road trip in each city. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. Um, well, sweet. Thank you so much for taking the time. I definitely learned a bunch. I know you're a busy guy, so I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, we'll have to catch up again in the future. Definitely. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, no worries. Have a good day. You too. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. Our goal is to help individuals like you learn practical knowledge you can apply today. If you want more information about how you can improve your capacity, visit our website at capacitypt.com. We have tons of info, including blogs, exercise videos, ebooks, and more. We're soon to offer services such as mentorship for clinicians and trainers, as well as online rehab and training. Stay tuned. If you like this episode, it would mean the world to us to leave a review. Again, our goal is to help and influence as many people as possible, and the best way to do that is through word of mouth. Leave us a review, tell your friends about it, shoot us an email with your feedback. We wish everybody the best. Expand your capacity.